Chapter Lies The dark assassin walked down the corridor where Lisa and Sean were locked in separate rooms. The floor was totally abandoned since it hadn't taken long for everyone to realize that the ship was in trouble. The dark assassin saw his counterpart, shaking his head, by Lisa's door. This one will be too hard. The husband asked the other dark assassin. Over there. The second dark assassin pointed several doors down the corridor. The two walked over to the door of the cabin where Sean lay unconscious within. They stood motionless for several seconds. I will sacrifice this body to fight his protector. You will take him. The first assassin nodded. After the assassin's limp body fell to the floor, the first kicked the door in, sending it flying with great force across the room. He quickly found Sean, lifted him effortlessly over his shoulder, and ran with unnatural speed away from the room. Inside the room, unseen to the eyes of mortal men, a spiritual battle was being fought. A huge angel, nearly 15 feet high with fire in his eyes, swung an enormous sword at a diseased ogre of similar bulk. The ogre parried the attack with his huge hand, which harbored thick, dirty claws, and, with one powerful kick to the chest, knocked the angelic being down to the floor, with claws fully extended. Hoping to make the final blow, the demon lunged at the angel. At the last moment, the angel, with his sword extended, moved quickly away from the demon. The sword made contact, cutting deeply into the demon's side. Landing hard on the floor, the demon grimaced in pain. The angel cautiously approached the demon and lifted his sword high. The demon looked up at the angel and smiled. You know this was only a distraction. Sean Duquesne now belongs to us, it said. Ignoring the demon, the angel swung hard but struck nothing as the demon disappeared. The sword disappeared from the angel's hand. Without the threat of attack, there was no need to wield it. You're wrong, foul thing. Nothing truly belongs to you, said the angel. Get those people organized, shouted Captain Trent to one of the crew members trying to get life jackets on passengers in an orderly fashion. The Coast Guard isn't going to be here for another half hour and this ship isn't going to last that long. The fires are out of control. I'm trying, Captain. I'm doing the best I can. Get back there. The crew member said to a passenger who had lost his patience and decided to cut the line and grab a life jacket. Captain Trent shook his head as he considered the upcoming rescue. The boats would arrive in half an hour while the helicopters were only 10 minutes out. There was no way the helicopters could pick up everyone so they would have to carry as many women, children, and elderly first. This, Trent knew, would create much animosity among the other passengers since the rescue would have to take place in the ocean. There would be many panicky passengers floating in the Atlantic as the ship went up in flames. Most of the passengers were off the ship, but the last few were proving too hard to handle. The last few passengers knew of the ship's current condition and became even more nervous for their lives the longer they stayed. If they didn't get this last group under control soon, Trent was going to tell his men to forget them and let them fend for themselves while the crew jumped overboard. Another crew member roughly pushed the passenger back in line, restoring some order to the madness. Captain Trent shouted Austin as he ran to his senior officer. Broken hand and all, Trent hesitantly turned to Austin as he picked up on the urgency in his voice. What's it now, Austin? One of the passengers said he might have heard someone scream on one of the bedroom floors. He didn't stop to help because he wanted to tell us. Yeah, right. 
He didn't want to stick his sorry butt out to help someone. I thought we checked every floor some time ago? Asked Trent. We did. Austin shrugged. I don't know. It's possible it could have been overlooked. What's done is done, said Trent. All right, I'll take. No, Austin. We're stressed up here. We need every able body to get these people off the ship. No way I'm sending people on something that may turn up nothing. But, no, what's mister? Shouted Trent. Hold on. Shouted Austin, shaking his head, getting the captain's attention. I'm going down anyway and check it out, but I need someone to help me just in case we find someone. There's no way I'd be able to run back up here, get someone to help, and go back down before the ship goes up in flames if I find someone. I need. Everyone's busy here, shouted Trent. Your help, Austin continued despite the interruption. What? You have every able body up here helping. The only person up here not doing anything is you. You're just blowing hot air into the wind. Come downstairs and help me save a life, Austin pleaded. Rolling his eyes, Captain Trent responded, I have a broken hand, you idiot. Or haven't you noticed? Yeah, I noticed. And that person down there wouldn't care if you were crippled in both legs. Trent, not able to come back with another excuse, shook his head. It was his ship and all passengers his responsibility. He had to show that he cared, even though he really didn't. Do you know where this supposed trapped person is? Trent asked. Yeah, that passenger gave me a good idea where to look. Fine then, let's go. Trent huffed. At night the 50-foot boat hung onto the back of the cruise ship with the help of a high-tension rope able to withstand the drag. As night turned to early dawn and the first few passengers, with enough foresight to determine the cruise ship's end, jumped overboard, noticing the small boat, and tried desperately to catch it. However, the waves and the speed of the cruise ship made that impossible until two passengers jumped off the cruise ship and struggled to keep themselves in line with the towed boat. The back waves caused by the cruise ship made it impossible for them to control their movement. They originally held on to each other when they jumped but were now separated and heading straight for the drag boat. Cal saw Catherine being dragged away from him, heading toward the other side of the boat. There was nothing he could do, he had to save himself, she was on her own. Cal looked at the looming boat and saw a ladder hanging on the side of it coming up fast. This was it, he had only one shot. He extended his hands, knowing that they were wet and would never grip the ladder, but that wasn't his intent. When the ladder came within reach, he hooked his arm and caught the ladder with it. The pain was excruciating, but he didn't let go. With his free hand, he grabbed the ladder with all his might and hooked that arm around one of the steps. He hung on for a while, catching his breath while being dragged with the boat, until he felt as though he could move. Slowly and carefully pulling himself up the ladder, he made it over the side of the boat, then slumped onto the floor exhausted. He must have passed out before he heard footsteps and cursing. He opened his eyes and focused on a woman cursing and screaming. As his mind cleared, he realized it was Catherine. She made it. I'm not going back in that ocean. Where is it? She screamed into the air. Where's what? Cal mumbled, then winced as he felt pain in the arm that first gripped the ladder. He hoped his arm wasn't broken. Catherine looked at Cal. So, you're not dead after all. Good. Then maybe you can help me find the key to the motor. I've been looking for the thing too long. I want to get some distance between us and that ship, she shouted. Wait, said Cal, trying to ignore the pain as he rose to his feet. For what? 
The ship's brimming up. The crew's sending people overboard. I want to get out of here. I know. I know. Maybe we can hotware the starter. He thought out loud. Hello. What do you think I've been doing? I'm not stupid enough to keep looking for a key when I can start the engine myself. But you said. I know what I said. I can't start the engine or find the key and I'm pissed off. Cal sat down again as the throbbing in his head increased. Then unhook us from the boat, he said softly. Catherine stared at Cal, then looked at his arm. He wasn't going to be much help. She tried that before and found the hitch physically impossible to unhook. Whoever hooked it was very strong. She shook her head. How was she going to tell him they were strapped to a dying cruise ship and may have to bail out of the boat? She was walking over to Cal when something caught her eye on the deck of the cruise ship. When she looked up at the ship, she saw what looked like a passenger standing on the railing holding a sack over his shoulder. The passenger stood there staring at the boat below for a while, a testimony to his extraordinary balance on the railing. Then the impossible happened. Catherine watched in awe as the man leaped nearly twenty feet in the air and glided down toward her. He moved too slowly to be falling. It was as if he was floating down. He landed on the deck of the boat with a soft thud and dropped Sean Duquesne to the floor. The dark assassin looked at Catherine, who slowly moved back from the overwhelming presence emanating from him. He looked at Cal, sized up his situation, then walked over to the hitch. The dark assassin unhooked it without any effort, then pulled a key out of his pocket. Can you drive? He asked Catherine. Catherine moved to the edge of the boat. You, you, she mumbled. You know who I am, and I know who you are. Now, can you steer this boat? Asked the dark assassin as he moved closer to Catherine. I, I, yes, answered Cal. She has the training to navigate this boat. Please forgive her, sir. She wasn't prepared to encounter anyone with your power. The dark assassin turned and smiled at Cal. Cal, too, felt the man's power and marveled at the strong presence emanating from behind his sunglasses. Your arm is busted, said the dark assassin. Cal chose his words carefully before responding. It will not stop me from assisting you. I'll not be a hindrance. Good, said the dark assassin. For at the first sign of you becoming a burden, you'll be tossed overboard. He turned back to Catherine. Take the key, little one, and steer this boat away from that tomb. I'll help you with the directions as soon as I get this, he pointed to Sean, down below. Catherine tentatively took the key, edged around the dark assassin, and quickly left to start up the boat. The dark assassin called after Catherine. By the way, do you happen to know how Mr. Duquesne got this horrible concussion? Without turning back, Catherine said no. The dark assassin looked at Cal. I have no idea, he said, wondering why the man was concerned. Cal thought they wanted Sean dead. Why was he still alive? I thought so, said the dark assassin, lifting up Sean. Tend to your ailment, I'll most likely need your assistance later. Captain Trent stopped at the entrance to the corridor where the passengers said he heard the scream for help. This was where the Duquesnes were staying, he thought to himself. What if they were still alive? It's not my job to clean up someone else's job, he thought. He looked at Austin, who had his head cocked as if hearing something. This is the place, said Austin, coughing. The fires weren't that close, but the smoke was starting to get thick. They had to hurry. So what are you going to do break down each door to see if someone's here? Trent said sarcastically. Austin ignored the captain and walked into the corridor. 
Hello? Hello? Is anyone still here? He called out. The captain tentatively followed Austin, not liking this one bit. He hoped the dark assassins did their job and didn't leave any evidence behind. Austin was nearly ten feet in front of the captain when he stopped. Captain, come here quick. Trent took a deep breath, then walked over to where Austin had stopped. What he saw shocked him beyond all belief. Lying before them was one of the dark assassins. Trent couldn't believe the Duquesnes were capable of doing this. He couldn't comprehend a power that could take down a dark assassin. I don't remember ever seeing this guy on board before, said Austin. Is he alive? asked Trent. Austin placed his finger on the dark assassin's neck. It was cold to the touch and void of any pulse. He then placed his hand in front of the man's nose. Nothing. Austin turned to the captain. This must be the voice the passenger heard. He's definitely dead, but what should we do? Ligamir? We should at least put a life jacket on him and throw him overboard so when they pick him up they can identify him and find out what caused his death," said Austin. The captain nodded. You're right. But that probably won't happen because we'll never make it out of here alive carrying him. Look at him. He's massive. There's no way we'll be able to take him up those stairs. Trent tried to look sympathetic. Look, Austin, the man's dead. Once the Coast Guard takes care of putting out the fire, they can retrieve his remains and do what they want with it. We got to go. The smoke was getting thicker by the second. Austin couldn't argue with the captain. It would take too much effort to move this man. Austin was about to agree when he heard a cough coming from a room nearby. Did you hear that? Said Austin turning in the direction where he thought he had heard the cough. Damn, thought Trent. Hear what? I didn't hear anything. Said Trent. We have to get out of here now. He coughed on purpose to add effect to the point he was trying to make. The fire's not far behind. Do you want to die here? I sure don't. Trent turned and proceeded to walk toward the stairs. I'm leaving with or without you. All right, shouted Austin behind him. I just thought that odd. This time Austin heard the cough not just once but several times. It sounded like a woman's cough. There was no mistaking it this time. Wait, he shouted to Captain Trent, who also heard the coughing. Now, he was obligated to stay and hope that it wasn't a Duquesne. I think it came from here, Austin said, pointing to a door. The doorknob was missing. Hello, is anyone in here? If anyone is here, please let me know. He heard a cough and a weak voice saying something. All right, move away from the door. We have to kick it in, he said. Austin waited a while, hoping that the person moved. He looked at the captain, who conceded. In his condition, any door that had to be broken down would have to be done by Austin. First, Austin felt the door to see if it was hot. He was happy to see that it wasn't. I'm going to break the door down now. Please get out of the way. Moving back as much as he could, Austin ran for the door, hitting it with his shoulder. The door budged, but not enough. Austin rubbed his shoulder, moved back, and ran for the door again. This time, the door gave way, sending both it and Austin to the floor. There was Lisa kneeling next to her bed. Austin looked up from the floor and recognized Lisa Duquesne. Are you all right? Can you walk? We have to get out of here fast. The boat's on fire. Lisa nodded, still coughing. The smoke was thick in her room as if the flames were just below them. Captain, give me a hand here, shouted Austin, standing up. From a distance, Austin heard the captain shouting back to them. The flames were starting to come through, 
You get Mrs. Duquesne. Austin heard running footsteps, then nothing. Damn you, Captain, come back here. Nothing. Austin looked at Mrs. Duquesne. She didn't look afraid but seemed serene despite the turmoil around her. Mrs. Duquesne, let's get out of here. He gently lifted Lisa to her feet and escorted her to the corridor. There weren't any flames, what was the captain talking about, thought Austin. Mrs. Duquesne, the ship's lost. We're sending everyone overboard with life jackets. The lifeboats are gone. Don't worry, I'll stay with you until we get picked up from the Coast Guard, which should be soon. Then it hit Austin. Mrs. Duquesne, did your husband make it to the deck? Tears began to fall down Lisa's cheeks. She couldn't find the words to answer the question. Sobbing heavily, she shook her head. Stupid, thought Austin, mentally slapping himself in the face. I'm sorry, he said. The two made it slowly up the stairs into the deck. There were only a few passengers left. Austin looked for Captain Trent, but couldn't find him. Hey, Dave, he shouted to one of the attendants. Help me get a life jacket on Mrs. Duquesne, will ya? Sure, as soon as I help these four, I'll be right there. Where's the captain? asked Austin. Man, you should have seen it, said Dave. The captain came bolting out that door, like he just saw a ghost or something. Grabbed a life jacket out of my hands, put it on faster than I've ever seen anyone do it before, and literally dived off the ship. I thought you were dead the way you looked. He jumped, asked Austin, not believing what he just heard. Yeah, said Dave, still helping the remaining passengers. No, make sure you tie that and loop it in here. Captain was cursing under his breath, talking about something not being on his head. Austin looked at Lisa. I guess he freaked, Austin said. Still tearing, Lisa turned away. She knew why the captain ran for his life. He was one of those that set out to destroy them. When he saw her alive, he must have panicked, realizing his efforts were for naught. I must be out of my mind to think she would love me. A fool. What a fool. The attention she'd sometimes throw my way was the bait to which I hooked myself. And once hooked, I couldn't let go. Why did she even acknowledge me? It made no sense. She could have married any man she desired, but instead she chooses me, a man lacking in emotion, but with an abundance of logic. My life was an equation, simple and precise, no variation. It made perfect sense for her to find someone else who could truly shower her with the expression of love she deserved. Oh yes, I tried but always seemed to fall short. However, despite my shortcomings, she loved me without question. Where would I be without her? I dare not think, but I will miss her. Her life was the spark that kept my light aflame and the purpose to my existence. What am I to do without her? Who will I turn to? It is not fair. Why couldn't it be me? I'd gladly take her place. And to think that I was prepared some time ago to divorce this blessed union with her. Sean? asked Cal, but Sean was still unconscious. For a minute there he thought Sean was coming out of it. He hurried. Lisa, my dear Lisa, I'll always love you. There'll never be anyone that'll take your place. I just wish I had a second chance so that I could cherish you better than I've done in the past. I'll show my love for you more than before. Sean, I don't think he can see or hear us. Should we give him more? Asked Cal. Yes. Hurry up, Catherine responded. I promise I'll take care of Nicole and Brad with the nurturing love you showed them. Oh, Lisa, if only I could see you again. 
The only image that burns in my mind is you lying unconscious in that room and me trying to find someone to help. But the pain is excruciating. Even now as I think of it, I feel the pain coursing through my veins again. All right, it's done. He should be completely out again shortly, said Cal. I don't want to wake up. I can't face the reality of living without you. It would be too much to handle. The loneliness alone would be taxing. I, I feel the darkness creeping in again and I welcome it. It keeps me from thinking about my loss. My love that's no longer with me, my Lisa. Captain Trent did the best he could to ride the waves and keep the salty water from entering his mouth and nose. But every now and then, the water would surprisingly slap him in the face, causing him to inhale the foul liquid. Coughing the water out of his lungs and nostrils only compounded the problem, since he wasn't prepared for the next wave that found entry into his mouth again. However, no matter how hard it was to breathe, what he feared the most was Lisa. Trent thought back to the moment when Austin finally knocked down Lisa's door. There kneeling near the bed was Lisa and standing next to her were three ten-foot-tall, enormous men dressed in white suits. They looked past Austin and stared with fiery eyes at him. The fire in their eyes wasn't color, it was actual flames. Each one held enormous swords, ready to strike at Trent if he dared to enter the room. Trent quickly assessed that these beings were the ones that killed the Dark Assassin, and if they could kill someone that powerful, then he dared not imagine what they'd do to him. So he ran. Every once in a while, he would glance at the other floating passengers around him to make sure he was nowhere close to Lisa Duquesne. In the distance, he heard the helicopters inside. The Coast Guard boats would be close behind. Most likely, the copters would pick up women, children, and the injured first, so his chances of running into Lisa Duquesne were slim if he didn't complain about his wrist. Water slapped his face, causing him to cough out the salty liquid so he could breathe again. Agent Brown picked up the phone. Yeah, no way. You've got to be kidding. Yeah, aha. Uh -huh. Well, no, I guess it won't. No, I don't have a problem with it, I. Okay, fine. Was the Coast Guard notified? Yeah, and the plane? 40 minutes, that's not much time to. Okay, I'm on my way. I'll call Redmond and Haddad. You already did. Okay, fine. Let me get this straight. The boat in which the Duquesnes were on is burning up in the Atlantic. The Coast Guard picked up Lisa Duquesne, but her husband's nowhere to be found. You want me to go down there, questioned Mrs. Duquesne, and hold her in custody for the suspicion of the murder of her husband, Sean Duquesne? Agent Brown paused. You know, it won't stick. And Marie Duquesne. Yeah, but... Okay, you're the boss. I'm on it. Bye. Nicole and Brad sat quietly at the dining room table eating their breakfast. Pastor Matthew and Vicky Bunn sat across from each child, silently watching their movements and patiently waiting for them to gather the nerve to ask whatever was on their minds. Brad consumed the bacon, eggs, and pancakes without any problems. Nicole, always conscious about food, ate fruit salad, an English muffin, and a small glass of orange juice. For nearly 30 minutes, the breakfast table remained silent except for the occasional clanging of utensils against China. Vicky Bun stood up and was about to start clearing the table when her husband stopped her. Honey, how about some coffee and maybe some hot cocoa for the kids? Brad, confused, 
looked at Nicole and then at Pasturban. It's summer. It's too hot for hot chocolate. No, it's not, Nicole interrupted. If you can drink coffee all year round, then you can drink hot chocolate anytime you want. I don't drink coffee, said Brad sarcastically. Pastor Bun smiled at his wife. Vicky, understanding what her husband just did, sat back down in her chair and listened to the sibling dispute. I know that, Brad. I was just saying that it's all right to. Ugh, like, why am I arguing with you? Well, asked the pastor, trying hard not to smile. Nicole turned and smiled at the pastor. Excuse me, Nicole said with a sweet voice. I didn't hear you. No problem, dear. Would you two like some hot chocolate? Nicole paused, looked at Brad, then back to Pastor Bun. We, um, we would like to call our parents. I knew this would come eventually, the pastor thought. Anne-Marie had warned him about contacting their parents, fearing that the phone call would be traced, so she hadn't left the number. Pastor Bun shook his head. I'm sorry, Nicole, but your grandmother didn't leave the number. I'm so sorry, but she'll be back soon, he said. Did she leave her phone number? Asked Nicole, distressed. No, she said that she's going to be on the road for a while and would call whenever she could. Brad shook his head. I can't believe grandmother forgot to leave her number. I'm sorry, dear, said Vicky. Why don't we put on the TV for a while? She said quickly, trying to take the kids' minds off things. Confused, Pastor Bun looked at his wife. Turning on the TV at this time wasn't going to solve the problem. An open discussion was what he wanted to draw the kids into. He tried to get Vicky's attention, but she wasn't looking. She walked over to the small television in the dining room and turned it on. Wait a minute, shouted Brad, causing everyone to look at him. Dial 411. We can get the phone numbers from 411. Nicole smiled at her brother. Sometimes, and she really meant sometimes, her brother did come up with good ideas. The sound on the television came on catching the news anchor in mid-stride. And as you can see, the cruise ship is completely engulfed in flames. There's nothing the Coast Guard can do but let it burn out. As far as we know, most of the passengers and crew have been picked up and taken to the Coast Guard base in North Carolina. There are a few passengers unaccounted for, and as you can see, the search continues and will continue for a while. The majority of injuries are minor bumps and bruises, while a few encountered shark attacks. The news reporter paused in his helicopter to receive information from the newsroom. We're just told that the Coast Guard are contacting relatives of every passenger at this moment and would like us to give their number on the screen if anyone, I mean anyone at all, may have a loved one aboard this cruise ship and hasn't been notified as of yet. Again, the cruise ship love line is dead in the water and in flames in Bermuda. Back to you, Rob. Everyone in the dining room remained silent for what seemed an eternity. Vicky, said a shot pastor bun, give me the phone. Eyes closed but fully alert, Sean wondered where he was. He knew he wasn't back on the ship because whatever boat he was on had a loud high-pitched engine. Also, the boat rocked back and forth more rapidly, indicating that it was smaller. Sean opened his eyes. He was in some kind of small bedroom. There were two other full-size beds and a door. Trying to muster the courage to move, Sean stared at the door. His muscles felt sluggish, as if he had been sleeping for quite too long. Without warning, a severe pounding seized his head, causing him to grab his temples. Nausea overtook him. The room began to spin quicker and quicker. 
He closed his eyes, leaned over the bed, and threw up. Sean flopped back on the bed and wiped the vomit from his mouth with his forearm. He heard the door open and someone walking toward him. He struggled to open his eyes and saw Cal. Shush, don't say a thing. Cal looked behind him nervously. I didn't give you enough medicine last time, that's why you're awake. Cal looked at the vomit on the floor. We need to get you something to eat to soak up the acid in your stomach, he whispered. Where am I? Cal quickly put his hand over Sean's mouth. I told you to be quiet. Look, Sean, you're sick, very sick. The medicine that I've been giving you is enough to keep you going until we get you to the hospital. The owner of this boat is taking us there right now, but he's, um, well, a little strange. So you have to be quiet. Sean nodded. Cal slowly pulled his hand away. He looked at Sean for a while before moving. He moved quickly to a box sitting on one of the beds and pulled out a syringe and vial. He filled the syringe, located the vein on Sean's arm, and administered the drug. Relaxing a bit, Cal talked softly to Sean. You hit your head very bad when we jumped off the ship. Do you remember? Sean shook his head slowly. You can talk, but keep it down all right? I don't remember anything except being thrown out of bed in the middle of the night, said Sean. Cal smiled. It's to be expected. You have a nasty concussion. There might be a few things you won't remember. He paused, then continued. You do remember what happened before we jumped, don't you? No, I told you I don't know. Sean felt the nausea slowly disappearing. I see, said Cal. Cal, what are you telling me? Cal glanced at the door. Rest, my friend, you need your sleep. Where's Leza? said Sean, slurring his words. The drug was quickly taking effect. It wouldn't be long before he lost consciousness again. She'll be all right as long as you cooperate. Weak you, Shay. Cal shook his head. Go to sleep. When you wake, I'll tell you everything. But for now, just remember this one thing. I saved your life twice already. You have to trust me. I'm your friend. Okay? Fiend, Cal. Sean passed out. Cal's smile became evil. Fiend, you don't even know the half of it. Do you?